Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the in the Pacific Northwest. Today is the 16th day, May 2021. We're going to get right back into the lecture I was doing uh, just two days ago, and this was our continuing discussion of the toll-like receptors um, in both the immune system and in the central nervous system. It associates with aging and certain neurodegenerative diseases that are linked to the morbidity and ultimate mortality of humans. So let's talk about a paper that was published in 2019 that once again talks about these TLRs, which are, of course, pattern recognition receptors. And we know that they mediate a host of inflammatory responses. And they are triggered by measuring and binding to particular molecular patterns. Now, I don't think I've mentioned this clearly enough. I'm trying to remember. I don't normally listen to my uh, previous podcasts. I hope that they come off the way that they sounded when I delivered them. But when we're talking about molecular patterns, you might get confused and think, well, aren't we just talking about molecules? Well, yes, but understand that a molecule is going to have atoms and there's going to be bonding between those atoms. There's going to be a molecular mass. There's going to be a solution chemistry of those molecules. They might be ionic. They might be hydrophobic in nature, the molecule might be. Uh, and there might be intramolecular interactions within the molecule resonance hybrid formation, as well as a mesomery, depending on if any ring structures in that molecule. Now, all of that kind of intramolecular chemistry is also going to be imparted onto the receptor. So the receptor is going to measure and recognize with a certain avidity that pattern recognition, not just the molecule itself, but the pattern it generates on the surface of the receptor. Now, this is a, a different conceptual framework than thinking about you have this one molecule and has a particular mass and has a particular structure, and that structure is always recognized absolutely by the receptor and no other structure. We know that's not the case because we know there are mimetics, and that's Pharma, uh, the pharmaceutical industry depends heavily on mimetics. And we also know that we have agonists and antagonists to receptors. And they do indeed have different molecular um, structures. But the patterns they generate are what is really recognized by the protein. And the protein are often embedded within a membrane. And then that membrane actually is functioning as part of the receptor system. That is the lipids that make up the annular uh, structure around that membrane protein. And of course, any kind of glycosylation or other kinds of covalent modification of that pattern recognition receptor are going to play major roles as well, not just in the sequestration of those toll-like receptors in the membrane, in the particular position, and therefore, um, valency, either external or internal or both within that, say, plasma membrane or endocytic membrane or intermitochondrial or endoplasmaticulum or 
peroxisomal or nuclear, et cetera, all the endomembrane systems combined, Golgi, but also that that pattern that's being recognized by whatever molecules are interacting with it uh, is going to play a major role in the um, movement of whatever intramolecular alterations are going to occur within that membrane protein, thus causing a dislocation of other proteins, potentially adapter molecules within the membrane that will then enhance or may diminish the overall stimulation or triggering of that reception, maybe over space, maybe over time, and maybe over space and time. So these are things that um, I don't think I've covered before, but now at least we did. Okay. So we know that these TLRs play a major role uh, in the microglia. And of course, we know what the microglia are. Their innate immune cells are like macrophages in the CNS. <clears throat> and we also know that the toll-like receptors are everywhere else in the periphery, right? And you have them also in blood mononuclear cells. You have them in the gut. And then all the time that we observe these TLRs, they are involved in some kind of immune phenomena. And we talked last time about Parkinson's disease and the fact that it is linked to a proteinopathy, synucleoproteinopathy, uh, 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 exactly. So synuclein is the protein that oligomerizes and makes that proteinopathy. So you get aggregated forms of this particular protein called alpha-synuclein. Now, interestingly, and yet not surprisingly, alpha-synuclein ligands the TLRs, and that's what turns on the immune response. Now, in the CNS, when this occurs, it can be quite dangerous because the immune response then will lead to an inflammatory um, sequelae and then that can lead to neurodegeneration associated with Parkinson's disease. So once again, that is that is described sim simply as an alpha synucleinopathy. But we know now that the toll-like receptor plays a very prominent role, not just the alpha synuclein. So that's the important part I want to bring up to you. Okay, so let's move on here a little bit. And remember that there's a widespread afferent projection system in the CNS. It's called the locus coriolanus, and that's the norandrinergic system, and it supplies norepinephrine throughout the CNS. And we know that there's a basic organization of that system that is necessary for norepinephrine to function, and that it plays out as an array of behavioral and then um, subducted to that electrophysiological interactions that have in common the facilitation of processing of relevant or indeed salient information in the CNS. Okay, So here we're talking about the ventrolateral preoptic nucleus, and we're talking about association of the thalamus the paraetroductal gray, which of course is going to be a dopaminergic circuit. And we're going to have also this VLPO, which is a GABA circuit and uh, a galactin circuit. 
And that's linked to the hypothalamus, the pons, and then ultimately um, to the lucus coriolis, which again is a norepinephrine pathway, okay? So we talked about this before, so I went over it fast this time because I don't want to belabor the anatomy, particularly because this is an audio podcast. So the system we're describing here contributes to the initiation and the maintenance of behavioral and even forebrain neuronal stimulation. And this is all part of sensory input, okay? So in the waking state, the system modulates the collection and processing of all the sensory information through really a diversity of concentration-dependent interactions within cortical and subcortical sensory, attentive, and memory circuits. So norepinephrine-dependent modulation of a long-term alteration in synaptic strength will associate with gene transcription changes and indeed other metabolic processes. So that suggests a potentially critical role for this whole neurotransmitter network that we're talking about here in experience-dependent alterations that lead to neuronal changes in function and then behavior. So it's the kind of thing that when your memory is triggered from something specific and episodic in your past, let's say uh, laying in the field of wildflowers up on Franklin Basin uh, on Logan Canyon uh, Highway in 1983, all of that is going to be associated with this circuitry, right? Now, for you to be able to recall that memory, um, that particular memory, you probably can't because that's my memory. But for you to recall a memory like that, all of this stimulatory network had to have been laid down then. And then you're recalling it through action potentials and triggering that entire response. So memory isn't a specific location or specific sublocation in a nucleus of the central nervous system. It's an interactome. It's an event ontology. Okay, so the ability of a given stimulus to increase the locus coriolis discharge activity is probably independent of the current affective valence. By that, I mean if it's appetitive or aversive. Okay, but it could have a strong linkage to the affective valence at the time that memory was scored and burned into that neural network. All right, so let's continue on here. So the locus coriolis noradrenergic system is a critical component of all the neuronal architecture supporting interaction with and navigation through causation mechanisms that is led ultimately by the free will. So the disruption of uh, by agency of the free will. So disruption of the locus coriolis noradrenergic neurotransmission pathway contributes to cognitive and or um, arousal dysfunctions. And that's all associated with a variety of neuropsychiatric disorders, including such things as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as certain affective disorders like uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So the locus coriolis noradrenergic system is indeed a target 
for pharmacological treatment of certain attention and memory and or arousal dysfunctionality. All of this being associated with a variety of potential damaging behavioral and cognitive disorders. So see how this leads right directly into uh, neuropharmacology. So the activity of the locus coriolis, which is the source of most of the norepinephrine in the brain, is actually affected. Now, this is where this is falling into the immune system, okay? Interleukin-1. When micro-injected into the locus coriolis, the LC, human recombinant interleukin-1, with a range of about 50 picogram to 5 nanograms, so very small amounts, will increase the activity of the LC neurons, predominantly by increasing what's known as the burst firing, which typically occurs in response to some kind of sensory stimulus. So here you've got interleukin-1 acting as a burst firing sensory stimuli. Now at higher doses or with longer time delays between injections, the spontaneous depolarization rate is also increased. So this excitation did not occur if an interleukin-1 was microinjected nearby, but outside of the locus coriolis. And so also understand this. It can be reversed by administration of interleukin-1 receptor antagonists. Okay? So you get how this works. And, you, and hopefully you understand why I'm bringing it up now. Because I'm leading you back into the immune system uh, as being a major player in the entire aging process, the morbidity mortality in humans. Now, go back to this paper we're talking about. It's a paper, I'll, I'll give you the citation. It's a paper that goes back to 2002, actually. Um, I'll mention it to you right away. It's in Neuroimmunomodulation. It was published in 2002. And I'll, again, I'll put the show notes. Now, <clears throat> in contrast to the excitatory effects, microinjection of a very low dose of interleukin-1, the 5 picogram, into the LC, inhibited the LC activity entirely. And again, you can block that inhibition by using uh, the IL-1 a receptor antagonist. So in view of the earlier findings that LC electrophysiological activity could be inhibited by the microinjection of a corticotropin-releasing hormone, this is classical, uh, of course, into the LC region, and that in interleukin-1 in the brain stimulates the release of CRH, and hopefully you remember that, the hypothesis that they were testing was whether or not the inhibition of locus coriolis activity produced by the low dose of interleukin-1 was in fact mediated by CRH, by corticotropin-releasing hormones. So this gets back into lipid metabolism, okay? The lipid metabolism crosstalk to the immune response. And lipid metabolism because <laughs> corticotropin-releasing hormone is going to release corticotropin, and that's a steroid, right? So... Microinfusion of the CRH receptor antagonist, helical CRH, which is a 9 to 41 amino acid uh, subfragment, actually blocked the inhibition of LC activity, otherwise being produced by the 5 picograms of interleukin 1. All of that indicates, if you're following, that interleukin 1 influences the activity 
of the locus coriolanus neuronal network via corticotropin releasing hormone. Okay, remember, remember the corticosteroids, right? All right, now we were talking about this before. We're talking, for example, about the biological clock, so which is going to record information in the brain as a memory. Okay, now why I'm talking all about this is because think about what happens in the aging brain. Memories start to fade or they become disconnected. And eventually, in very late stages in life, a person's memory could almost completely be taken away from them. And so self begins to become desorbed away from the central nervous system. So this is, I'm trying to get at the molecular physiology, molecular pathobiochemistry of this operation. But remember that there, this is only the phenomena we're talking about, which is what science measures. The noumena, you know, the agency behind all this phenomena is not something you measure with any of this neurobiochemistry. Anyway, the microinjection of interleukin-1-RA alone was found to decrease the LC activity. Of course, that suggests that the LC neurons are under the influence of a tonic excitation simply by the cytokine interleukin-1. So the activity of the LC neurons can be influenced indeed by IL-1 through the stimulation of its receptor. This is, was uh, way back in 2002, so almost 20 years ago. This was published, and many papers since then have backed this up. So there is a potential involvement, therefore, of interleukin-1 in stress responses by means of that particular cytokine influencing the activity of the, uh, of the LC neurons, of the locus coriolanus neurons. This is, again, part of the whole memory as well, and the arousal system that we covered last time in lecture. Now, I want to jump ahead here, and that's background information, and it's very important, okay? Because, again, we're putting together this architectonic. Now, a paper published much more recently in Frontiers in Neurology, this was in January of uh, 2018, tells us something more about the microglia. Let's bring the microglia in here. So, remember, amoeboid microgliomorphology, rather than the highly dentate phenomena of microglia with a great amount of surface area, amoeboid microgliomorphology is associated with acute brain injury and the classical aging that we link with neurodegenerative diseases. But not only those, but also with epilepsy and, going back to what I was just descri describing to you, neuropsychiatric presentations. So there is a Association. When we see association like that, what do we call that? We call that a pattern. And remember, we're talking about pattern recognition receptors like the TLRs. Okay. So, <clears throat> CNS disease is also linked to an increased expression. Now, now, this is where we're bringing it back together from the 2002 paper uh, with IL-1. So, IL-1 and leukin-1 is actually a master regulator, of course, of the inflammatory response is capable of activating the entire global networked innate immune response, particularly the microglia and the CNS. It does so by inducing expression of numerous uh, other inflammatory cytokines and chemokines and growth factors, all of which elicit a leukocytic infiltration 
into the inflammatory loci, and this increases ultimately subcellularly phagocytic and bactericidal activity of immune cells, right? And that enhances the activity of the complement system, we now require an immune response, ultimately facilitating the acti activation of the adaptive, uh, in this case, uh, B cell plasma cells. Now, since it's an increase in leukin 1 and a microglial activation generating that amoeboid uh, morphology, it's possible that both of these together can be a composite biomarker for prodromal CNS disease. Indeed, in peripheral tissues, increase in leukin-1 expression is tightly linked to macrophage activation during inflammation. So this is occurring in a CNS and also in the periphery. Now, Important caveat here. Brought it up many, many times. All immune responses that the microglia are involved in play absolutely beneficial roles in the central nervous system physiology. Rocky, be quiet. So a blockade, Rocky's a dog, sorry. Blockade of their activation, microglial activation, isn't going to be a good therapeutic measure. Similarly, trying to block or inhibit interleukin-1 beta is not going to be good neurotherapy or therapy for an aging brain. Because all of this, the microglial activation, interleukin-1, are linked to central nervous system <laughs> normal functioning. And in fact, even CNS development or redevelopment, repair, and all the physiological and neurophysiological activity you think about in the CNS. So this is a very important point. So here we're talking about some potential pathology with you know the amoeboid microglia and the leukin one inducing an immune response, uh, an inflammatory signaling which can cause neurodegeneration. We're talking about the Tolak receptors last time linked, of course, to Parkinson's disease. And two lectures ago, it was about Alzheimer's disease, right? And there was the tau proteins and the A-beta protein. And last time, we just, we just recently talked about alpha-synuclein. You see how this is like forming a process of understanding, right? But I'm giving you now the reverse of this. I'm giving, I'm taking, taking the ratio and flipping it over and reminding you that what the microglia normally do, or look and one normally does, is kind of um, off its normal pro-inflammatory immune response, right? So that particular signaling is always functioning, surveilling and controlling potential um, damaging effects of an inflammatory response in the central nervous system or even invading pathogens or uh, uh, or remnants of pathogens such as protein fragments and lipid fragments. But at the same time, the microglia and cytokines that are going to look in one are functioning not as immune systems, but as tailoring, repairing, and controlling the normal physiology of the central nervous system. And this things back to my theory about how the immune system is ultimately and intimately involved in the entire development of CNS, including all of those subcortical interactions that include things like memory, agency of understanding, 
and imagination so that you can respond to a reflected memory and become totally absorbed within it uh, as an endogenous factor of self, all of which begins to evaporate in advanced aging. And the very sad and, and somewhat stochastic way, depending on the individual. Right? So those of you that experience this around the uh, advanced elderly know what I'm talking about. So again, let's go back to the neurodynergic system. The CNS neurodynergic system is activated by acute stress. The postsynaptic effects of norepinephrine are exerted at a cellular and ultimately, of course, at the neuronal circuit level. And they've been described as NE facilitates responses evoked in target cells by both an excitatory and ultimately an inhibitory afferent input. Okay. So here we're talking specifically about the mesocortical limbic dopamine circuitry. So you've got the, the ventral tegmental area, which is, it houses the dopamine neurons, and they project to various limbic and cortical brain areas. You also have gaminergic, intra, and innervating projections, and you have glutamatergic input going into the VTA dopamine neurons. And all this is essentially together integral to the circuitry we're talking about, right? You have this mesocortical circuit that contains a positive feedback loop from the prefrontal cortex back to the ventral tegmental area. And that sustains what we consider more demanding cognitive and indeed inspirational or motivational aspects in reward processing, such as in social interactions. You also have a hippocampal input, and that will disinhibit the VTA DA activity, and that'll support a contextual framework, and that will survive as a reinforcing learning, such as a memory from 1983 in my case. So the amygdala input can actually inhibit the VTA activity as a reflection of an emotional aspect, essentially driving reward processing. So a positive, affective, memory. Huh? And of course, the norepinephrine projection is going to go to the prefrontal cortex. Right? It's also going to go to the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala. And as I said, as I just mentioned, the hippocampus. Okay. So these are all essential factors that can become corrupted as the brain ages, hence affecting memories directly, because it's corrupting this neuronal network that had been laid down and reinforced through whatever decades transpired between the original memory and current. Right? And then this then causes this evaporation of self, and that can be linked to, but not necessarily so, particular neurodegeneration of subcortical nuclei in the central nervous system. Okay. I'm giving you the phenomenological perspective, right? That's the important thing that you have to keep in mind here. This is the scientific perspective. It's not the agentic perspective. So I want to continue this. I want to talk about another really important steroid hormone uh, 
It's actually a neurosteroid that was only recently described as a neurosteroid. It's also known as allopregnolone or 3-alpha-5-alpha-3-hydroxypregnantuone. So it's a, it's a ketone derivative. And it's got, you, we're going to find out it has a protective activity in a lot of neuropsychiatric states in humans. But it also seems to protect in Alzheimer's disease. So see, once again, I'm extrapolating the pattern recognition receptors of the TLR to the pattern recognition of the central nervous system in association with its linkage to the immune response, genetics, epigenetics, and ultimately to the um, cascading effect of severe elderly mediated morbidity and then mortality. Okay? And that's, again, what we're leading to, right? We're trying to give you a causative understanding of the aging process leading to the final stages of morbidity and then death itself. Right? And I'm trying to link this, of course, I, with the immune response and with epigenetic alterations. We haven't brought in epigenetics today. I, I could have, but I didn't want to. I almost got there, but I didn't want to because I wanted to give you more of this neuropsychiatric circuitry and this understanding of how memories are laid down. Right? All right. <clears throat> so, this was hopefully a stimulating lecture for a Sunday afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, and I will see you very soon, uh, possibly on video for the next uh, lecture, but certainly a couple more audios before we start wrapping this up. So again, Dr. Dan Guerra coming from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 16th of May, uh, 2021, saying bye for now.